welcome to the Cedar Fort Come Follow Me Made Easier podcast. I'm your host, Linda Cherry. Today we're going to be studying Genesis 3 and 4 and Moses 4 and 5 with our teacher, Robert Miller. Robert is the author of the book, Isaiah, A Prophet's Prophet, that was released in November of 2021. Robert has the daunting task today of discussing the fall of Adam. I was not raised in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and while I was growing up, I was always taught that the fall was a very negative thing, and in fact, it was a punishment and a judgment against Adam and Eve. There was always a particular blame placed on Eve that caused me a lot of grief and sorrow as a woman, and we've seen that acted out throughout the ages as women have taken a, a lower place oftentimes in society based on the fact that Eve was the first to partake of the fruit. But we have an entirely different perspective with the restored doctrine that we have in the Pearl of Great Price as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, a doctrine and a perspective that I am very grateful for, where we come to understand that the fall was actually a very positive step forward. Today, Robert will explain to us that there was really only one plan that was presented in the pre-mortal council, and that was the plan of our Father in Heaven. It is called the plan of salvation, a plan for which I am also deeply grateful that was laid before the foundations of the earth so that we might have the opportunity to come back into the presence of the Father and live with him for an eternity because of the atonement of Jesus Christ. In fact, this is an important aspect to me about the fall, is that before Adam and Eve were ejected from the garden, the Father instructed Jesus to make coats of skin for Adam and Eve to wear before they went out into the celestial world. As I've contemplated that over the years, I've come to see those skins as representative of being covered literally by the atonement of Christ as the lamb who was slain from before the foundation of the world was laid. So that when I think of those coats of skin or wear a temple garment today, I picture myself as being wrapped in the arms of Jesus Christ and remembering that even as Adam and Eve left the garden, they were assured that they would be covered by the atonement of Christ, which would make the way easy for them to come back again if they would repent and follow the Lord and make covenants with him. Robert is going to explain to us a little bit about the difference between a sin and a transgression and help us to understand more about how that is weighed in view of uh, partaking of the fruit in the garden. And um, I want you to listen really carefully where Robert reveals his secret desire to have a flaming sword. So I know that you will enjoy this time with Robert, and uh, we so appreciate you joining us in the Cedar Fort podcast. Thank you. Well, hello. My name is Robert Miller. I'm so glad to be with you today in what I feel is one of the most important uh, scripture blocks that we're going to do in the Come Follow Me uh, curriculum this year. We are going to start off talking about our premortal life, the plan of salvation. We'll talk about the fall of Adam and Eve, its effect on us, and how it blesses us. So I'm looking forward to spending a little time with you today. And Moses chapter 4 starts off with our premortal life. 
And I just think about the Premortal Council. As that council was, what were the plans? And I think just starting off, there really was only one plan presented. Elder M. Russell Ballard said, quote, we are part of a divine plan designed by heavenly parents who love us. It was their plan. It wasn't Christ's plan or anyone else's plan. And I love what Elder Maxwell said about this plan. He said, quote, it is extremely important to get straight to what happened in that premortal council. It was not an unstructured meeting, nor was a discussion between plans, nor an idea-producing session as to how to formulate a plan of salvation and carry it out. Our Heavenly Father's plan was known, and the actual question was whom the Father should send to carry out the plan. And so in Moses chapter 4, we get the plan, verse 1, And I, the Lord God, spake unto Moses, saying, that Satan, whom thou hast commanded in the name of mine only begotten, is the same which was from the beginning. And he came before me, saying, Behold, here am I, send me. I will be thy son, and I will redeem all mankind. That one soul shall not be lost, and surely I will do it. Wherefore, give me thine honor. Satan has so much of an I problem there. It's focused on him. And maybe some things about what we know about Satan in the pre-earth life. He was an angel who was in authority who rebelled, as found in section 76, verse 25. His name originally was Lucifer, which means light bearer or shining one. He was a son of the morning. And he wanted, according to verse 1 of Moses, chapter 4, must be the central figure in the plan of salvation. It's, here am I. I want to be the central figure. He claims, verse 1, that he will be able to redeem all mankind what he really wanted from the scriptures teaches us that he wants the throne of God the Father. He wanted all the power. He wanted the honor. He wanted everything the Heavenly Father has. But in verse 6 of Moses, chapter 4, verse 6, he never knew really what God was all about. He never knew, quote, the mind of God. I'm not sure he ever understood the love that God had and his desire for us to progress. He only wanted to really exalt himself above the stars of God. That's the Isaiah quote, chapter 14, verse 13. But that's really his point. He wants to be above all. It's his pride. As President Benson uses that pride that Satan has as an example, that it was his prideful desire that he wanted to be honored by everyone else and dethrone God. That verse 3, he says he sought to destroy the agency of God, and Lucifer becomes Satan. Satan's a title. It means the slanderer or someone who accuses or attacks. He is thrust down in verse 3. I'll just read it. Wherefore, because that Satan rebelled against me and sought to destroy the agency of man, which I, the Lord, given him, and also that I should give unto him mine power by the power of mine only begotten, I caused that he should be cast down. Satan's premortal proposal wasn't a plan. He never explains how he's going to do anything and how any of us would benefit. Satan didn't have the power, the knowledge, the integrity or worthiness, or even the ability to redeem all mankind. Satan's motive really was just all about him, had nothing to do with anyone else but him. President Dallin H. Oaks talked about that plan and really just said it wasn't even a workable idea. President Oaks said, quote, Satan's method of assuring that one soul would not be lost 
would be to destroy the agency of man. Under his plan, Satan would have been our master, and he would have led us captive at his will. Without the power of choice, we would have been mere puppets or robots in his hands. End of quote. What I found with when we understand what Satan wanted, it helps us to understand how really great Christ is. And that background helps us to understand the fall. Understanding the fall helps us appreciate and know more about Jesus Christ. Or maybe the best wording that I've ever found about it was from President uh, Benson. He said this, quote, Just as man does not really desire food until he's hungry, so he does not desire the salvation of Christ until he knows why he needs Christ. No one adequately and properly knows why he needs Christ until he understands and accepts the doctrine of the fall and its effect on mankind. So we get to the fall in verse, starting in verse 6, the events that lead up to the fall of Adam and Eve. Chapter 4, verse 6, And Satan put it into the heart of the serpent, for he had drawn away many after him. He sought also to beguile Eve, for he knew not the mind of God, wherefore he sought to destroy the world. And verse 7, And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? kind of like challenging that agency that Eve has. And he spake by the mouth of the serpent. And then skipping down to verse 10. You're, you're aware as this conversation goes on, Eve brings up kind of a, wait, aren't, didn't God say we're going to die? And verse 11, and the serpent said unto, unto the woman, you shall not surely die. For God know that in, your, in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as the gods knowing good from evil. In verses really 12 through 16, we then see the process and the result of sin. In verse 12, and the woman saw the tree was planted for good, and then it became, would be the second pleasant for the eyes, and the tree to be desired for her, for her wise. And she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and also given her husband with her, and he did eat. So here's kind of a little process. First she sees it, then it becomes pleasant, then she desires it, then she took it and partook or ate it, and then wants to give it to someone else. And after partaking of it, her eyes are opened, really meaning she knew the transgression clearly in God's view, verse 13. And then as a result, verse 14, they hide themselves. And then for me, this is one of the things that sometimes I think, why does God ask a question that he knows the answer to? Because after Eve eats the fruit, Adam eats the fruit, they hear the voice of the Lord, verse 14, as they're walking in the garden. In the cool of the day, and Adam with his wife, they went to hide from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees. And I, the Lord God, called unto Adam and said, Where goest thou? And I'm thinking, God already knows the answer to this. He knows where Adam and Eve are. And the first time I read it, I think, you know, where art thou? Where are you at right now, spiritually? But I love the way that Moses, Moses has it. Where goest thou? Where are you going? In the Midrash, that's an ancient Jewish commentary on the Bible, it explains that that question is asked for Adam. It has nothing to do with God's knowledge. It's Adam where are you spiritually now that you've sinned? Hey, Adam, where are you emotionally now that you've sinned? It's a question to be asked for Adam to consider 
a little bit more about his present state, and it's a way to teach Adam. And then verse 16, Adam, I love his response. He's just honest. And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden. I was afraid because I knew that I was naked and I hid myself. And the Lord says to Adam, who told thee thou was naked? How thou, hast thou eaten of the tree? Wherefore I commanded thee that thou should not eat. If so, thou should surely die. See, I love just that once God's just teaching Adam. Adam, do you know where you are? Did you do this? And the man, Adam, I just love his just honesty. You're right. I did it. The woman thou gavest me. She commanded the shimmering with me. She gave the fruit and I did eat. And God asked the woman the same thing. And I love the woman, Eve's explanation. The serpent beguiled me and I did eat. She takes and Adam takes responsibility for what they do. And now for me, one of the greatest verses in everything we're studying. And I love what the Lord says in Genesis 3.15, or I'm going to be reading from Moses 4.23. Um, I will put, and this is God, I, God, I'm going to put enmity or hatred between thee, not Satan, and the woman, Eve, and between thy seed, now that's Satan, and the third of part of the host of heaven who followed him, and her seed, so that's Eve and mankind. So just reading that verse, just putting in all the characters, and God will put hatred between Satan and Eve, and between Satan and his hosts, and even mankind. And then you stop right there and, and think, okay, the woman, why isn't there a man there? Why is it singular? Well, you start thinking, there is something unique as well about the Savior's birth, where it is a woman, the woman, Mary. And that works as well. And God will put hatred between Satan and Eve, but also Mary, she's the woman, and between Satan and his third, and not just Eve, but Mary and Jesus Christ. It, and I love the little footnotes, just, or he, footnotes for the Genesis account, but he, that's Christ, shall bruise or crush, would be a better way to say it, thy head, Satan's head, and thou, Satan, shall bruise or crush Christ's heel. I think, okay, when does Satan have power to bruise or crush the heel of Christ? It's going to hurt. It's going to be tender. And I think of times Christ's time in front of Pilate and the Jewish rulers as he suffers, ending on the, on the cross and dies. Yes, we see the Savior pointed throughout the entire part of what we're studying this week. There is a time where Satan has power to crush Christ's heel. But then there's also, because of the atonement of Jesus Christ, he has power to crush Satan's head. When is it the Savior fatally crushes Satan and his power? Well, it's through the atonement of Jesus Christ where Christ overcomes death and hell. And I picture that as Christ walks out of the tomb triumphant, resurrected. Um, to know, God, well, God knew that Adam and Eve would attempt to cover their sins. 
but that's a futile thing. And as a result, verse 27, unto Adam and also unto his wife did I, the Lord, make coats of skin. So I love it that Christ is the one that makes coats of skin. In order to make those coats out of skin, blood had to be shed where an animal was killed, where Christ would say, even what I'm doing right here, right now, is pointing you towards the atonement, where his blood would be shed for us. In Hebrew, the basic word for atonement is kafar. It's a verb that means to cover or to forgive. When Adam and Eve leave the garden, they know that they've been covered. They've been covered by the shedding of blood in one part for coats of skins, but ultimately by the future shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ. Sometimes when we talk about the fall and we want to teach it to one of our friends who might not be a member, we think, okay, what do you think they think about as Adam and Eve partook of the fruit? I've chatted with some people who are friends of another faith, and for them, this is a very icky kind of thing. For them, it's a great sin. But for us, as Adam and Eve partake of the fruit, we realize it's a fall, but a fall forward. President Dallin H. Oaks explained it this way, quote, Some Christians condemn Eve for her act, concluding that she and her daughters are somehow flawed by it. Not the Latter-day Saints. Informed by Revelation, we celebrate Eve's act and honor her wisdom and courage in the great episode called The Fall. Brigham Young declared, We should never blame Mother Eve, not in the least. Elder Joseph Fielding Smith said, I never speak the part that Eve took in the fall as a sin, nor do I accuse Adam of a sin. This was a transgression of the law, but not a sin, for it was something that Adam and Eve had to do. For me, the fall, the fall allows us to progress. The fall was a fall forward. Before the fall of Adam and Eve, there's no physical death. They're living in God's presence. Adam and Eve would have remained in that gar- in the garden in the state that they were at, unable to have children, being innocent. As 2 Nephi chapter 2 says that they would be no, neither good nor or evil, joy nor misery. But after the fall, we, men, women, could die physically. And they were cast out of God's presence and became spiritually dead. Eternal life is now a possibility because... There is redemptions made possible. Adam and Eve, as a result of the fall, could have children, and they could experience good and evil. They could experience joy and misery. And now, just moving on with chapter 4, verse 23. And unto Adam I, the Lord God, said, Behold, thou hearkened unto the voice of, my, of thy wife. Thou hast eaten of the fruit of the tree of which I have commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat. Cursed shall be the ground for thy sake. In sorrow, thou shalt eat it all the days of thy life. For me, that's one of the great verses that helps me teach the value of work. The cursing is not, Adam, you're cursed. Eve, you're not cursed. But the ground is cursed as a blessing to help us as we eat it. As President Marion G. Romney said, Note that the curse was not placed upon Adam, but upon the ground for Adam's sake. Rather than a curse upon Adam, it was a blessing to him. And I've thought a lot of times just taking times in my life to really to ask myself the question, what are the blessings I've received because of the fall of Adam? And as I start to make that list, I'm grateful 
for what a brilliant woman, Eve, and an honorable man, Adam, has done. And then I also like to think, maybe as I'm studying this, what's the most important thing I can teach my friends or my family about the fall, how it allows us to progress? One day, I will love to be able to have a conversation with Eve. I see her as brilliant, very observant, and understanding the direction that God would want us to take in our progression. After this happens, we have, uh, now this is the end of chapter 4, Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden, and verse 31, so I drove out, drove out the man, and I placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword. And, and as a side note, I'd love to have that flaming sword. I know that's probably not what I should be saying, but that would be really cool. Okay, flaming sword, which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. I love the symbolism that's here. Now, I don't know if you could draw this or kind of see this, but just think of Eden as a circle. And then the east side, coming out a little bit, God placed Adam eastward in Eden. And then as Eve and Adam are kicked out, they are kicked out to the east. And I love that symbolism that's there. If this is the presence of God, and they're eastward in Eden, as they leave the presence of God, they're headed this way. At the second coming of Jesus Christ, He's once again reminding us he has overcome the effects, every effect of the fall of Adam and Eve. As he comes from the east, or as it says in Matthew 24, 21, the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth unto the west, or sun comes out of the east to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Christ is headed from the west, from the east to the west, or coming back, if you're watching me on the camera this way, which really the symbolism there is Christ is bringing us back to the presence of the Father. I just love that, that imagery in that direction. Sometimes people ask the question, all right, was Adam and Eve, was it a sin or transgression? We often talk about it as a transgression, but then he didn't do what he should be doing. So isn't that a sin? President Dallin H. Oaks explained it this way. Some acts, quote, some acts like murder are crimes because they are inherently wrong. Other acts, like operating without a license, are crimes only because they're legally prohibited. Under these distinctions, the act that produced the fall was not a sin, inherently wrong, but a transgression, wrong because it was formally prohibited. These words are not always used to denote something different, but this distinction seems meaningful in the circumstances of the fall. I'm just going to add one other just kind of note that I skipped over. As Adam and Eve are speaking with the Lord after they've partaken of the fruit, and or Moses chapter 4, verse 22, uh, it says, Unto the woman, I will the Lord God said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow shall I bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Modern day prophets maybe want us to put a little different word there for us that maybe fits better for in our day. President Spencer W. Kimball didn't like that word rule. He said, quote, I have a question about the word rule. It gives the wrong impression. I would prefer to use the word preside because that's what he does. A righteous husband presides over his wife and family. And for me, it's a lot like Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. 
Husbands, Paul says, love your wives, even as Christ has loved the church and gave himself for it. As husbands have that kind of presiding, things work well in a marriage. Now, just some kind of concluding thoughts on the fall. And this is from Elder Jeffrey R. Holland, because I just, I love what he teaches here. He says, quote, Because this doctrine of the fall is so basic to the plan of salvation, and it's because it's so susceptible to misunderstanding, we must note that these references to natural evil emphatically do not mean that women and men are inherently evil. There's a crucial difference. As spirit sons and daughters of God, all mortal men and women are divine in origin and divine in their potential destiny. But it's also true that as a result of the fall, they're now in a natural or fallen world where the devil taketh away light and where some elements of nature, including temporal human nature, need discipline, restraint, and refinement. End of quote. Because we live in a fallen celestial world, it's irrational and irresponsible to expect any human to live a sinless life including yourself. Sometimes that's I get caught up in that where I think, oh, well, it's great, but I need to be sinless. But never is that said. We should never have that expectation. If we understand the fall, it can change us. Now, I'm just paraphrasing Elder Robbins out of the April 2011 conference, who's actually quoting Carol Dweck. Quote, empowering us with hope knowing that we are not as bad or wicked as we thought we were by realizing that our carnal nature and sensual urges are part of being human or of the flesh. And we're not who we are of the spirit. If we understand the fall, we would never allow our sins, failures, weaknesses, or natural inclinations or tendencies to progress from feelings and actions to our identity. We'd never associate our identity with the type or intensity of temptations that we experience. Maybe the best summary I had is from Elder Neil L. Anderson's book, The Divine Gift of Forgiveness, where he says, quote, The fall and everything that comes with it does not define you. It helps refine you, quote. Now, everything I've learned about Adam and Eve indicate to me that they're side by side. They're cooperating. They love each other. They're great parents. I think they have a role model as far as their marriage goes. And in Moses chapter 5, I'm not going to read all these verses, but I just pick out some things that they do in their marriage that blesses each other. At the end of verse 1, chapter 5, Eve and Adam, they're laboring together. That's really powerful when you can say, let's do this together. Or even a family, let's weed the garden together is much different than saying, hey, son, go weed the garden now, everybody may have uh, their things that they do, but working together blesses a couple together. Okay? And in verse 2, Adam knew Eve. There's a lot of connotations there, but they're getting to know each other in a lot of different ways. And skipping verse 4, Adam and Eve called on the name of the Lord. They're praying. They're setting an example for their family. Verse 5, they're also, as God gives them commandments, they worship together. They sacrifice together. And they're obedient to the commandments. They set an example. It's do as I do. It's not the attitude of, hey, 
just, I'm going to tell you what to do and then not do it. I have loved the quotes, this quote from the family proclamation, quote, successful marriages and families are established and maintained on principles of faith, prayer, repentance, forgiveness, respect, love, compassion, work, and wholesale recreational activities by divine design. Fathers are to preside over their families in love and righteousness and responsible to provide for the necessities of life and protection of their families. Mothers are primarily responsible for the nurture and children. In these same responsibilities, fathers and mothers are obligated to help one another as equal partners. And I'm also realizing that there are going to be people who watch this that say, that's great for a husband and a wife, but what about me? Maybe you're you're like my mom and a, uh, dad's passed away, single or maybe divorced. Those principles for you and whatever family situation you're in, maybe you're with an extended family, are valuable to pray together, to work together, to sacrifice together, to worship together, to set an example to each other. That still works to bless and strengthen a family. Now, I also realized that after many days, and, and this is just typical Adam for me. Adam is there doing all these things. He was worshiping. He's praying. He's offering sacrifices. And after many days, this is verse 6, an angel Lord appeared into Adam and says, why, Adam? Why are you offering sacrifice in the Lord? I love Adam's response. I don't know. Sometimes in my life, I want to know everything. And I think it's very valuable to know the whys. And sometimes we don't know why. And we pray to know why, to find answer. Here's why this is going on in our life. But I love Adam's response. I don't know why. I'm just doing it. And then the Lord teaches him about the atonement, knowing that the Lord in the future, one day will say to Joseph Smith, this is Dr. Covenant's 19, 16 and 19, I, the Lord God, have suffered these things for all, that they might not suffer if they would repent. Nevertheless, glory be to the Father. I partook and finished my preparations under the children of men. But for Adam, he is taught, this is verse 7, the angel spake, saying, This thing is a similitude of the sacrifice of the only begotten of the Father, which is full of grace and truth. Therefore, all thou do, thou doest in the name of the Son, and thou shalt call, thou shalt repent and call upon God in the name of the Son forevermore. And in that day, the Holy Ghost fell upon Adam, which bearing record of the Father and the Son, saying, I am the only begotten of the Father from the beginning, henceforth and forever, as thou hast fallen, thou mayest be redeemed, and all mankind, even as many as will. Adam is obedient and waits for the day for the Spirit to testify that he is going to be, well, that everything is true. I love that. But then bring it home today. Think about our sacrifices. We don't do sacrifice with animals like Adam is doing there and the angel comes talk to him. But we do sacrifices today for the Lord. We sacrifice our will and our desires to be more like him. And I've also thought about the sacrifices I've made in my life, what they've taught me. That could be a great thing to discuss in, in a family situation or, you know, if you're in a classroom, what has sacrifice taught you? How has it blessed you? Now, going back to Moses chapter 5, um, I love that 
when Moses, or sorry, Adam and Eve, they get these things and they just want verse 12. Adam and Eve blessed the name of God and they made all these things known unto their sons and daughters. They taught it. But now we get a story of Cain and Abel where Cain chooses not what Adam and Eve were teaching. You get that starting verse 13. Satan came among them, said, I'm also a son of God. And he commanded them, believe me not. Don't believe what they're teaching you about Jesus Christ. Believe what I have to say here. And man began from that time to be carnal, sensual, and devilish. And now skipping verse 18. Cain, as you know, he's the tiller of the ground. Abe, you, can, you know, is a, hopefully is a keeper of the sheep. And verse 18, Cain loves Satan more than God. And God, Satan commanded him, saying, Make an offering unto the Lord. This is kind of a, I want to say a devil-inspired process. But he listens to him. And in verse 19, in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought the fruit of the ground and offering the Lord. And now this is just me. I just kind of picture it. Abel's taken his very best. Firstling of the flock. Everything's representing Jesus Christ. And then Cain takes the fruit of the ground. And I'm thinking, what kind of fruit's on the ground? The bruised, the rotten, the non-appealing, that you want to just throw away. And I almost get the feeling that's just in my mind where Cain is saying, all right, I'm going to take these leftovers because God wants me to do it. I'll do it. And he goes and gives that as a sacrifice. And then, even though Cain is doing this, I love the way the Lord teaches him. Cain, you're worth redeeming. I can help you if you'll listen to me. So, uh, end of verse 20. Lord has respects to Abel's offerings. Not so much for Cain. Verse 21, but unto Cain and to his offering, he had not respect. Now Satan knew this, pleased him, and Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said, once again, here's a question the Lord knows the answer to. But he asks it anyway, to help Cain. Why art thou wroth? Why are you mad? Why is your countenance fallen? I love how God is still trying to work with Cain. He's still trying to help him. And verse 23, if thou do well, thou shalt be accepted. If you don't do well, if you don't do, if you keep on the same path, it's not going to work out well for you. That's 24 and 25. But Cain just gets madder and madder. Verse 25, and Cain was wroth. Listen not anymore to the voice of the Lord, neither to Abel. And I can picture his brother trying to reach out and help him too, who walked in holiness before the Lord. And Adam and his wife mourned before the Lord because of Cain and his brethren. I think we have parents around us, and sometimes us as parents, we can relate a little bit to Adam and Eve, where maybe we don't have a, a child that's doing exactly what we hoped. We mourn. We still love them, but we're saddened by some of the decisions they make. But the love is still there. And the end of verse 28, really, Satan or Cain loves Satan more than God. Really, Cain rejects the greater counsel that comes from God. And I just kind of pause there and I think in my life, I want to be the opposite of that. I don't want to be one who accepts and acts on the greater counsel from God. 
I think of all the counsel that I receive in my life, whether it's from prophets, apostles, scriptures, sometimes from those in my family who are just inspired to remind me of things, I think if I'm just willing to be open to the Spirit, listen to and act on what the Spirit helps me understand, I can always accept the greater counsel from God. And Cain gloried in that which he had done. Because Cain walks up and kills Abel. He's happy about it. I am free, he says. Surely the flocks of my brother falleth into my hands. And the Lord asks a great question of him. Where is Abel, thy brother? Once again, does God know where Abel is? Yeah, he's now in the spirit world. God knows what's happened, but still God is reaching out again and again to help Cain. Elder Dallin H. Oaks talked about uh, my brother's keeper. And President Oaks said this, quote, Are we our brother's keepers? In other words, are we responsible to look after the well-being of our neighbors as we seek to earn our daily bread? The Savior's golden rule says that we are, and Satan says we are not. Tempted of Satan, some have followed the example of Cain. They covet property and then sin to obtain it. The sin may be murder, robbery, or theft. It may be fraud or deception. It may even be some clever but legal manipulation of facts or influences that take unfair advantage of another. Always the excuse is the same. Am I my brother's keeper? Yeah, we are. And then I just think, well, what about today? How can we be our brother's keeper today? For Cain, it's just another way to be manipulative and get what he thinks he wants. For us, it's once again an opportunity to be spirit-directed, to be able to act as Christ would have us act, to look for, to be quick to observe what's going on in our brother's and our sister's life, to act to help them and bless them in their lives today. Now, um, Cain's descendants, unfortunately, follow his example. Now, I'm skipping chapter 5, verse 49. As these individuals now enter a covenant, it's ironic that they're entering a covenant with Satan, an agreement, and figuring, hey, Satan might do his part, but their agreement really is a secret combination. And in verse 31 is what we call the Mahan principle. So what it is, is that you can have life and it equates to gain, life for gain or money. Verse 33, when uh, Abel or Cain said, I am free, secret combinations want to claim that, that you can sin and not suffer the consequences and be free of all the consequences. And that they're not their brother's keeper, that they're not responsible. Three characteristics of secret combinations from this chapter. One, they believe life is equivalent to gain, money, or some sort of like that. That they don't have to suffer consequences for sin. And three, that they're not responsible for what happens to other people, that because maybe they're a little smarter or a little more intuitive or whatever, that they can get that gain and not worry about the consequences for another or being their brother's keeper. So they follow this example. On the other side, the righteous counter it. 
I love how the gospel counters secret combinations. The gospel of Jesus Christ counters wickedness. And we end the last few verses, verse 58 and 59 of this chapter, by reading, And thus the gospel began to be preached from the beginning, being declared by holy angels, sent forth from the presence of God, by and by his own voice, and by the gift of the Holy Ghost, all three ways. And thus, so here's one of those, got to pay attention to it, thus we see kind of things, and thus all things were confirmed unto Adam by a holy ordinance. And the gospel preached and decree sent forth that it should be in the world until the end thereof, and thus it was. Amen. The gospel confirms what we've been taught. Ordinances tie us to God and help us in our way back to overcome the effects of sin and death and return back to Him. Well, hey, thanks for spending a few minutes with me on these just marvelous uh, couple of sec- chapters. And a couple of things I just loved, and I just want you to know. I do know that there's a divine plan that's been designed by heavenly parents for us, and that plan leads to our eternal happiness. And I know that Jesus Christ is the central figure in that plan. For me, as I study the fall, I'm awed by the brilliance and faithfulness of Eve and Adam. The fall for me is a fall forward. The fall of Adam and Eve does not define us. The fall can refine us to help us become more like Jesus Christ. And understanding what the fall is can give us hope and it can empower us empower us to be more like Christ. Hey, thanks for spending a few minutes with me. I hope you have a lovely day. Keep smiling. Isaiah, a prophet's prophet's teachings are designed to help students of the scriptures increase their understanding of the words of Isaiah. His writings persuade us to believe in Christ, and they give hope to us in our day. Through the words of modern-day prophets and apostles we are given added clarification, guidance, and encouragement to assist in this effort. Written by Robert Miller a full-time seminary teacher for the last 27 years. He has also taught Institute, Adult Religion, and BYU-Idaho online classes. He received a PhD in 2001 in Instructional Psychology and Technology. Robert gives incredible insight into the sometimes difficult teachings of Isaiah. Isaiah a Prophet's Prophet. Find it at cedarfort.com.